millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, Imelda Wickham was, for many years, a prison chaplain. The role gave her a unique insight into our criminal justice system and how it treats those who ultimately end up behind bars. She comes from a religious background as a presentation sister, but her ideas and experience, as laid out in a book she has written, are focused on how the state deals with those convicted of crime and why, in her opinion, there is so much wrong with the system. Unheard Voices, Reflections of a Prison Chaplain, is the name of the book, and Imelda joins me now. Imelda, you're very welcome. Thank you, Mick. Imelda, we'll get to the system, the criminal justice system, in a few minutes. But first, could you tell me how you became a prison chaplain and what exactly is involved in the job? Okay, well, I think um, I always felt called to actually work um, with prisoners. And um, I think as a religious, um, I feel that we are called to be on the margins of society with people and there are people, no other people are as much marginalised as those in prison. So I wanted to be with them. And also growing up, I knew very little about prisons, but I always had this innate uh, feeling that there were people who were set apart, who were kind of isolated, um, ostracised, set aside. And I, some way I wanted to meet with them, to get to know them and to walk the road with them. And that's what I felt called to do as a chaplain. And I suppose as a chaplain, you have a very privileged position in a sense because you're in there with them. You can walk the road with them. You hear their stories. You get to know who they are. You can get to know maybe what brought them into prison uh, in the first instance. And you also get an opportunity to keep hope alive in them and to prepare them for their ultimate release back into society. And during your time, Imelda, were you in one particular prison or do you want to say which prison you were in? I spent uh, almost 20 years in Wheatfield Prison. In Wheatfield Prison in in West Dublin? That's correct. That's correct. And as far as the prisoners are concerned, their attitude to the chaplain, do they like consider you perhaps as as an independent advocate for them or or a friendly ear or somebody of that nature? I think they saw you as an advocate and the friendly ear. And I suppose the one thing prisoners want most is that listening ear, someone that they can trust, that they can talk to in confidence and that they know that that confidentiality will be respected at all times. And I think the prison authorities respected that as well. So the confidentiality was key. And I suppose above all things, when you are stripped of everything else and there is nobody really that you can turn to within the prison system, the chaplain is the one person that you can turn to who's kind of walking the, the, that thin line between the institution and the individual. So the chaplain fulfills that role. And inside in the prison, just physically, the kind of environment in which you'd meet prisoners, for example, was there a room they could come to? Was there a schedule whereby people came to you? Or how exactly did that operate? No, as chaplain, you had free access to all parts of the prison. And this was fantastic. I could go to any part of the prison while they were unlocked, obviously, during lock-up time, you couldn't. But I could go to any part of the prison, be it the workshop, the cell, 
the school, the yard, wherever. So I just went where they were. They didn't have to make an appointment to see me. I would make a point of being out in the prison early in the morning. So as they were unlocked after the long night, they would see you around, to see you mingling with them. And you got to know them in that way. And then during the day, you went to the cells, you went to the workshops, you went wherever they were, I went. And you had that free access, which was fantastic. So they didn't have to make an appointment or come to a certain a special room. Uh, the chaplains had that privilege. And when you say you, you met them, is it just that you were there as a presence and you said hello and perhaps if they wanted to chat to you, they did? Or would somebody come up to you and say, could I have a word with you later or that kind of thing? It would be different for everyone. One thing I did every morning, I would go to those who had come in the night before, those who had committed to prison the night before, I'd make a point of meeting them first thing in the morning. So you began that relationship when they came in. And very often when they'd come in that time, they would ask you to contact their family, to contact their wife or their mother or father or child, whoever it was. So you made a contact with the family as well. And then from that, that's where it went. And during the day, people would ask you, can I have a word with you? We'd find a quiet place we could go and we'd have that word. So it varied. And we also could go into the cells. And very often I would stay around in the evening time. And that was a good time to be in the prison because I could go around. uh, The workshops were closed. Family visits were over. The school was closed and the chaplain could wander around. And it was a good time to meet people and to have that um, heart-to-heart conversation with them and to see what it was they wanted to talk about. And also, I suppose, to get to know them. Getting to know them was was, was, was was the key. And I think building up that relationship with them, that was vital. Yeah, and you mentioned about the first night they'd be in there. And I, I've, certainly from the outside, and I've no experience, thankfully, first-hand experience of prison in, in that respect. But I would imagine that uh, particularly which I'd say would be a large cohort of individuals that the first time they go into prison might be their very first experience. You you have a certain amount of recidivists or people who may have been there as a juvenile. But I would imagine it can be a bit of a shock for people who, they're in the court, they're sentenced to prison and they land in there and you see them in that state. I'd imagine that a lot of them would be very unsettled at that point. They would and maybe confused and anxious and worried and... um I think it was just the fact of somebody going in. Now, they would also meet the governor and the doctor and other people, other services would be ministering to them at that stage as well. So you were just one person. But at that time, it's a very, very difficult time for anybody. Um, I can't imagine what it's like myself to be somebody who was committed to prison. And I think, you know, when I met them for the first time in the prison, uh, I often said to myself, that man sitting in front of me could be my brother or my father or someone very close to me. And I often also said to myself, you know, I could be the one who's on the other side of the fence. So um, I think that initial meeting was very, very key. It might have been only a short one, but at least you were able to put their mind at ease and also to contact their family. That was a big thing with lots of them, when you contact somebody that they were close to and just tell them I'm OK, I'm here. So when you went back to the office, the next thing was then to contact the family and to get in touch with them. So those initial meetings were very key. And um, sometimes some of them would have been in prison before. So but coming back again is not easy either. There's a certain sense of failure. How here I am back again. And for those coming in the first time, this sense of the unknown. How am I going to cope with this? How are people? What have I left behind me? Uh, the whole thing of guilt, remorse, um, maybe after a long court uh, hearing. Uh, maybe reading about yourself in the paper, looking at yourself on television, all these things. We have no idea really uh, how traumatic it is. And I think, you know, before I went into the prison, 
I wouldn't have realized how difficult it must be for people who do find themselves within the prison walls. And would you be aware, Imelda, of what crimes particular prisoners were serving a sentence for and would that colour your approach to them in any way? No, no. I met them as people. It wasn't of any concern to me uh, what they had done. Um, It was up to them to tell me. I never went to look at their files. Uh, Obviously, you would see it on the paper or television. I was never that interested. I just wanted to meet them as human beings and to recognise them. I'm meeting you. You're Mick. How are you? What can I do for you? I just saw them as people. Um, and what they did, that was another issue. And I think, you know, there's time for that. But on that initial meeting, even throughout my whole time with them, that wasn't I wanted to get them to know them, who they were. And during my time in the prison, I'd often say to a man, you know, maybe some people would have committed fairly serious crime. And I say, you are still the same person you were before you did this. And now is your chance to get back to to getting in touch with that inner goodness that's in yourself. You are still the same person and to get back in touch with who you are as that person. So really, as I saw them, I just saw them as ordinary people um, who had committed crime. Okay. And... uh, but they were still the same people they were before they did that. And I think that was terribly important. And to help them to get in touch with that inner goodness in themselves and to recognise who they are and to not to lose hope. You see, Amelda, some people would suggest that, and I think it's inevitable, a number of the people you would have met would have been convicted of violent crimes and quite possibly would have been individuals who were who would be described as being violent, to put it that way. And I'm just wondering, from that point of view, were you ever in fear of your own safety? Or were you ever warned about particular individuals that they're capable of irrational violence or of anything of that nature? No, I didn't. I didn't. I honestly felt my experience was that when you meet somebody and treat them with dignity and respect, they return it. And... um, I suppose I wasn't looking for the violence in them. I was meeting them as people and they recognised that. And I think that's what we need to do as a society as well, regardless of what they may have done, to try and get in touch with, or to help them to get in touch with who they really are. And I've said in the book, and I say it again, I never met an evil person. I met people who had done evil deeds, but they were not evil people. And I think we have to distinguish this. And when you say they might be described as violent or whatever, how other people described them was never going to colour how I how I met them or how I treated them. I wanted to meet them as 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 individuals, as member of somebody's son, someone's father, whoever they were, and I wanted to see them as an individual and meet them at in, at that level. And I think they responded to that. And um, I didn't go around fearful. Or, as a matter of fact, I would have found them uh, treating me with great respect, great courtesy, they showed great gratitude. Um, you know, I met some wonderful people, being honest with you. And I think when you get to know the person um, as distinct from their crime, and I think you have to separate them. Obviously, the person did the crime, but you have to meet them at that level. And I think that's important. And I think it's important for society as well to try and get in, to try and see that side of things rather than um, vilifying them and demonizing them. That has never worked and never will. Um, uh, so I think when you meet people and recognize their innate dignity and treat them with respect and dignity, they all re- respond to that. That was my experience. 
Oh yes, and I only bring it up on the basis of I've written a fair bit about prisons and I'd be familiar with a lot of staff in prisons and you do hear of a small minority of individuals who would be described as being violent and irrationally so on and it's purely in the context of one's personal safety but as you say, your experience was not anything negative in that respect. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. You also, and very cogently, Imelda, you you point out about the dignity of the human being and and that everybody, you meet them on their own terms. What would you say to people, and and I'm I'm quite sure there are a lot of people out there, who would suggest that, for example, those who are incarcerated for committing violent crime and, and sometimes sexually violent crime, that they have to be imprisoned, that society has to be protected from them, and that... Some people would say, and it's not something I personally agree with, that they're not fit to be allowed out into society. What would you say to people who've been victims of the type of crimes that these people would be convicted for? Okay, well, there are a number of issues there, Mick, that you bring up. The first thing I'd say is that in the book, I'm calling for a conversation to begin around how we deal with the issue of crime. And I think that conversation has to take place. And I have my experience of 20 years working within the prison That's my experience. There are other people who have totally different experiences. But I think until such time as we all sit down and listen carefully to each other. And I always say, listen with the heart as well as with the head. And victims of crime, I can understand it must be horrendous what they have gone through. And I think they have to be central to this conversation. And so have their families. And I think the perpetrators have to have a say in it as well. I think, you know, it can be us and them. Whereas if we see them as members of our families, of our neighbourhoods, of our cities, of our towns, and see what can we do to help these people? What is the answer? Like we've only, it looks to me that, you know, way back in 1985, the Whitaker report said we should use imprisonment as a measure, a measure of last resort. And today I think we're using it as the first measure of, of, of resort, the first measure. And I think we have to look at that and look at other and more creative ways. And I've never said that we don't need prisons, but we need very few of them and much smaller ones. We don't need to imprison the large numbers of people that we do in prison. And this one size fits all, that doesn't work. So really what I'm calling for is this national conversation where all voices can be heard. And we all have our say in how do we deal with crime and how do we deal with the victims of crime? How do we help them? And don't forget, as well as healing the um, helping the victims, we also need to help the perpetrators to find their way in life, to find their way through the darkness that has brought them into that uh, criminal activity in the first instance. So we do need to hear all these voices. And people who are saying that that's the only option, maybe they need to hear and to reflect other other options. And I'm sure there are, but we all need to sit down and look at them. For example, one of the options I'm looking at And again, it's not a one size fits all, but it's the whole option of restorative justice and how that might work as as opposed to imprisoning people or maybe as another way of maybe imprisoning for a shorter time and then looking at a restorative process. There's such such a need for a conversation for all of us to sit down and talk together. I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah, and you mentioned restorative justice, Imelda, and, and it's, to best my knowledge, there's a couple of pilot projects there. And from what I can gather, there's been positive feedback from us. Tell us yes. a bit about your understanding of restorative justice. I suppose um, my understanding of restorative justice, and I think the general one is that it's an effort at reconciliation and at restoring right relationships. If I do something on you, how do I make reparation 
or make restitution to you. Locking me up in prison saying, pay back your debt to society, that really doesn't work because when you lock them up in prison, they don't get an opportunity to pay back their debt. So restorative justice is about a process, and it's difficult, I suppose, to, to describe a process, but it's about making an effort to bring the perpetrator and the victim together and maybe members of their families or society and to see, is there any way that I can recognise what happened to me that I can tell you if I'm a victim, this is how it affected me. If I'm the perpetrator, maybe to have an opportunity to make some kind of reparation or restitution and to maybe express remorse or whatever it is. So there are different aspects of restorative justice. And again, it, there are some um, projects, but it's not mainstream. And I think we need to look at it maybe as an alternative to imprisonment or as maybe a, another way of maybe shortening uh, time in prison or whatever. There are so many options out there. I think there are new and creative ways of dealing with crime, but we need to sit down and talk about them. And creating more laws and making life harder for people is not going to, to, to bring about the, 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 the just society that, that we're looking at. And, you know, when we talk about crime and punishment and prison and all the rest of it, I've often sat back and said, what are the causes of crime? What leads people into crime? And always what comes to me is what we need is a more just and equal society. And as long as we, I think what the Pope said there recently, you know, creating a more just society is, is more difficult than actually creating more prison spaces. But we're not, we have to be willing to sit down and say, what kind of a society are we growing up in today? Where are these people who commit crime, where are they coming from? My experience of working in prison I worked. The majority of people coming in prisons they come from the margins and from 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 the poor areas. That I mean that's a well known fact. Many of those in prison suffer from mental health. Many suffer from serious addictions of all kinds of addictions. That's never treated. And my argument is, if we are looking at these issues, like if I'm serious about addictions, and I would say that addictions is one of these great diseases of today's. Why don't we look at creating or setting up addictions um, treatment centres rather than imprisoning people? Why do we not? hospitalized people who suffer with mental health problems. So these are the issues that, you know, imprisonment can be an easy option, I think, you know, so, but I think we need to have a, a broader conversation based on the humanity of all of us. You know, we're all human beings with our strengths and our weaknesses. And I think we all need to recognize the strengths and the weaknesses in each other and to recognize that your strength might be my weakness or vice versa. I think we need to do that. Yes, and a lot of the themes you touch on there, Imelda, they're central, I think, to a debate that often goes on around crime. And uh, in particular, when you refer to those from the margins, making up the vast majority of people within prison. I always remember John Lonergan was a man who uh, put it out there that I think in Mount Joy, he suggested, I think the postcodes around the north and south inner city were where the vast majority of prisoners there came from. But just a couple of things about it. And I'm putting these to you because I, I know they're the kind of thing that some listeners would feel. In, in the first instance, absolutely. People who come from the poorer uh, parts of society, very often from dysfunctional families, which I think is another issue that perhaps needs addressing. But what other people will say, Imelda, is that huge numbers of other people who come from those neighbourhoods don't commit serious crime and don't end up in prison. It is one thing, maybe if you don't mind, I don't, don't like to think dysfunctional families. I think we're all dysfunctional. Well, that's... I'm sorry, I agree with you there. Yeah. What I'm really referring to there is, is for example, people who, who come from very poor backgrounds and as well from families that perhaps addiction is an issue and that kind of thing. That's right. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, maybe... Um, and I'm not getting away from the point now, but... 
I worked with people in a prison who actually would go out to get released, go out the gate, and they'd say to me, Mel, it makes no difference whether it's left or right, I've no place to go. Yeah. And I used to wonder, when I see them coming back into prison, what is bringing them back in here? And I used to say to them, Johnny, why are you back in? I said, you're going to get a plea. And then I began to realise, it's not really, I was, I was putting the blame in the wrong place. The system that brought them in in the first instance and bring, continued to bring them back. I mean, if imprisonment was working, they wouldn't be coming back in. So there are all those issues that I had to look at and say, this system needs to be challenged. This system needs to be brought into line with the 21st century thinking. I mean, we've new ways of looking at the whole behavioural thing nowadays, psychology, psychiatry, even the whole moral ethical thing has changed. So I think we all need to look at, you know, look at crime and, and the reasons behind it and the, the whole thing of human behaviour, what causes it. And yeah, you said we all don't end up like, for example, I come from a very ordinary um, family and many of the families I know, um, they're great families and maybe just one member it ends up back in prison. Maybe sometimes it's intergenerational and it's almost like a way of life with them. The father before was in. And again, we have to we have to ask, why is that? Why is imprisonment intergenerational? Why is nobody breaking that cycle? And the only way we're going to break that cycle is by breaking the cycle of inequality and injustice. That's that's one way. So when you say why some and why others, I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer. Like one of the things that I learned in prison is to put up with not understanding because there were so many issues and so many questions. But at the end of the day, I always had to come back. The people I met and I had to look at what is the system doing to them? What has brought them in here in the first instance? What's going to happen to them when they go out again? All of these. And like this system, it needs to be updated. It needs to be looked at and it needs to be changed. Like you can't really, we can do little things to reform the system, but you can't reform something that's fundamentally flawed. So I want a whole conversation to begin around the causes of crime. Who are we locking up in prison? What happens when they're in there? What happens when they go out? All of those issues. Then the length of time we 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 we, we, we um, commit people to prison. There's so many issues. The mission, the I've mentioned before, the mental health, the addictions. They should be treated elsewhere, but not in prison. Like it's it's almost like we 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 put all our problems into the prison and they'll solve it. That's unfair. That's unjust in itself. I certainly could agree with you there. Absolutely, Imelda. No, you, the two issues you mentioned there: mental health and addiction. Separate issues, but related in some ways. In your experience over your 20 years, did you encounter a lot of, in the first instance, say mental health difficulties where you would have seen prisoners and perhaps said to yourself, that man, and I think it was a male prisoner, that man should not be here. He should be in a, a, a secure uh, hospital facility or something. I did. I did. And I'd have to say that the staff and prison management did their best to, to, to help them as best they could. But they weren't medical staff. They weren't trained in mental health issues. So they did their best. We all did our best. But that was they should have been in prison or in, in hospital and they weren't. So I also remember, and this always stays with me, I would have had a lot of contact with, with mothers of young prisoners in my day. And very often the mothers would tell me, you know, when Johnny was growing up and then, you know, coming into teenage years, something happened. I noticed a difference coming in and he was developing maybe some mental health issues or there was something happening to him. And I went for help. Um, and I couldn't get any help. I, he was always on a waiting list or there was no room for him. I did my best and then he ended up uh, committing crime. But there was always room in the prison, so he ended up in prison. And that mother or father had done their level best to help that, but the help wasn't out there for them. And, you know, 
if you listen to the radio today and look at the number of people who are homeless, the number of children today who are homeless, I mean, what, what are we saying to these people? There's no room for you in our society. There's no space for you. There's no room for you if you have a mental health, if you have a problem, but there will be room for you in the prison. And there's something very, very wrong about that. There is, and you're touching something there, Melda, which I think is very interesting too, that, for example, in what one might call more middle-class or better-off areas, you will often encounter uh, people in adolescence, perhaps, and the, the, the issues arise, whether they be associated with mental health or just whether they get in with a wrong crowd, to use a phrase, or whatever. But very few of those people will end up in prison where their equivalence from the margin, it seems to be, as you say, the, the option of first resort in that instance. In that instance. I think we really have to look at who makes up the prison population and answer, why is this? What is happening? What's happening? Why are the poor, the, the majority of people in prison? Like, the poor are no more prone to evil than I am or you. Yeah. That is a fact. I Like, there's nothing that I, anyone I met in the prison, they have done nothing that I'm not capable of doing. That's the reality. Or that you're not capable of doing so we have to, instead of demonising these people and just locking them away, maybe to look at other ways of helping them, you know, to see how can we get in touch. And like the mothers and fathers who have tried very, very hard with young people at times to keep them out of prison, I've often, I felt so sorry for those people who had done their best and, 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 and there was no help there for them. Yeah, and that's the next thing I was going to come to, and that is, is families. And in the book, you, you, you write a short passage at one stage, lovely written in a very moving way, but a very sad scenario too, about two mothers inside in a prison waiting room. And yeah, no mother brings up their child to uh, to visit them in a prison. No. Um, I often felt, you know, when I worked in the prison, I suppose most of my time, because it was a fairly big prison and you were constantly on the go meeting with people in prison. And I had very little time to meet with the families, but I used to occasionally go to that waiting room and I observed what's happening there. And I spoke to these people and really the tragedy of their lives. I think the families of people in prison are the secondary or the tertiary victims of crime, if you like, and their needs are never addressed. And way back in 2018, if you remember, it was the year of the families. And I remember hearing all these lovely talk about, about uh, families and, you know, the great families and, um, and I said, this is it. I'm going to do something now to try and support the families of people in prison. So we set up an organisation called um, New Direction Supporting Families of People in Prison. And that was specifically there to try and help people who have to spend their lives, some of them. I mean, when I left the prison after 20 years, would you believe it? There were people there who had been there when I started and were still there when I was leaving. And I knew their families. I knew their children growing up. I knew their um, their story, I knew their history, and um, I often thought, what must it be like for the families? And um, I saw those families too visiting the prison week after week, year after year. And Mick, if you were to ask me, what uh, could you explain to me unconditional love? I said to you, go into any waiting room in any prison and you will see what unconditional love is. Yeah, that is, the, as you said, there are obviously... When people perpetrate particularly violent crime, there are victims, but yeah. uh, perhaps you might describe it as in a secondary level. The other victims are the families and very often the parents of uh, of yeah. the people who are involved in the crime. Another short passage you did there, and you kind of touched on it earlier, Imelda, 
related to a, a, an account you gave of sitting in a cafe with a prisoner who had been released and he's asking, where do I belong? Where do I belong? I remember, yeah. Um, one thing I do, I keep in touch with them to leave prison, particularly now that I have a bit more time. I, I like to keep in touch with them. And I also needed to know what it was like for them when they got out. So I made a point of trying to meet them. And very often we'd meet them in a cafe or whatever and have a cup of coffee with them. And um, I suppose many of them who got out, they found it so difficult. You know, the whole stigma of of, um, of imprisonment doesn't leave you when you walk out the prison gate. It follows you. And very many of them would describe for me how they found it so difficult when they got out. Very often they had no place to live. They were certainly not going to get a job. They had no place to go. And very often they returned back to the old lifestyle, which involved taking drugs. And I would have met some of those who had gone back on drugs again. And... Um, when they'd meet me, I always felt they were kind of a little bit embarrassed, almost like, you know, here I am again, and then they're back to the old Johnny, back to the same old thing. And um, I remember that man saying to me, you know, um, what is it? What, what? I don't know what my calling in life or where I fit in. And many of them don't. And if they can't find their feet when they get out, there is no option except to come back. And that's what happens for many, I think. And I think there's a great onus on society. I think society needs to to wake up as well and say, you know, if I'm an employer, am I open to giving somebody a second chance? And, you know, some employers do that and fair use to them. I, a man got out of prison there about a year ago and he's, he's got work. And you know what? It has made such a difference to him. His self-respect is back. He has a sense of dignity. He's earned a living. He's able to make his way through life. But many of them who will deny that don't make their way. And I think society has got to, a lot of education needs to be done around crime and the causes of it. And to really put our finger on, like, for example, I, what, we don't criminalise injustices in society. And that's as criminal as <laughs> a criminal act. You know, that itself is an injustice. So where, where do we stand in all of this? Whose side am I on? Am I willing to call, call halt to the injustices and, and to recognise them and to name them? We need to name them. What are they? And not to put them all on the back of the poor prisoner who has been judged and, 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 and sentenced. Absolutely, Imelda. On that, you obviously encountered hundreds, possibly, I suppose, running into thousands when you consider your, your length of year, of prisoners. Did you come across many who managed, having served their sentence, to find a role for themselves in society, get work and, and you know, hopefully some kind of a stable background and managed to prosper in that way? I did, I did. Um, don't think many of them actually prospered, but many of them have... Well, prospered relatively, relatively speaking. Like, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're living good lives. They're living good yeah, lives. that's what I mean. And yeah, some of yeah. them who would have been demonised before they, when they came into prison, they've come out, uh, particularly if they can get accommodation. That is the key thing. A place to live is, is vital. And they also need, when they come out, they need a lot of support. Um, we set up a project some years ago called Trail, where people who were coming out of prison, they were, you know, they were, they were given accommodation. They were also given a, a counsellor to look after them. And actually, the counsellor began to work with them prior to coming out of prison and then continued with them when they came out. So it was kind of a seamless transition from prison to the outside. But I have met people who have done very well, are living very nice, uh, fruitful lives. Um, some have been welcomed back into their families. Others are not. Um, and they, again, have to find their own way. And, you know, Mick, one of the things I learned, I suppose, in prison, and um, because family is very important to all of us. You know, we all belong to a family. We all belong to, and we all want to belong somewhere. And what I found, I suppose, human relationships are very complex issues and very fragile. And what I discovered was 
that some families can cope with imprisonment and they're able to support a person in prison. Other families find, I'm just not able, I can't cope. So the person in prison finds themselves totally alone. And when he or she gets out of prison, they're still alone. So that's where society, I think, needs to, to welcome them back into society. Like, I think part of the restorative justice model would be to welcome back into society. Do you know what struck me recently? You know, when we look at people coming back from the Olympics and they come back with gold medals or whatever, and or oh, he's one of us or she's one of us, and we welcome them back and they're great. You know what I mean? And I often think maybe people being released from prisons, we don't we don't want to condone what they did or celebrate it, but I think we should welcome them back and say, You were one of us, you're still one of us, you were one of us before you went in, you're still there. We're here now to welcome you and to support you and to help you to live life as you were meant to live it in in, 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 in the beginning. Very much so, Amelda, and I, I have to say, I think it's enlightening to to hear your thoughts and particularly in light of your experience. But you, you, your um, what you're calling for, I think, is very enlightening as well. However, I mean, I have to put it in the context of where society is at the moment, and we have a political culture, and to a large extent, there there are various shades in that political culture, but to a large extent, it does reflect feelings in society around issues, and one of those issues would be crime. And in that context, where do you see any leadership coming from that would be willing, and, and politically it would be going out on a limb, I'd suggest, to go out on that limb and say, okay, we need a whole rethink on this. We need to find out how to handle this scenario better, how it's better for the victims, how it's better for the perpetrators. It would take an awful lot of political courage to, to, to go down that route, I'd suggest to you. It would, it would. And, you know, I think radical change calls for radical courage. And I, But I think that, that there has to be people there. But And I think, too, you know, politicians will, will, will always go with the... With the with what society are calling for, looking for. And that's why I'm calling for this national conversation. But the conversation has to be based on, you know, recognising the dignity and humanity of all of us. You know what I mean? But I think that conversation has to take place. And I think we have to put it to our political leaders. If they want a safer society, they have a responsibility to make that to make our society safer. And locking people up in prison and maybe doing very little for them while they're there and releasing them back into that same society is not going to bring about any change. So I think, you know, there are people I think who would have the moral courage, and I hope there are. And certainly if any politician came to my door, this is the question I'd be pushing to them. What are they going to do about this issue? And I think, you know, there are people with courage out there who will be willing to to, to put their their, their neck or whatever, and to say what has to be said. Um, I certainly uh, hope that we have leaders who will do that for us, and I would encourage them. And But I think society has to make their voices heard as well. That's when I talk about education, you know, we have this idea of, you know, that we lock up all the, the bad people and all the good people outside. That's not the case at all. So I think we've got to get people to, to educate themselves and to look at what happens to people when they go into prison, what happens to them when they come out, why did they get there in the first instance? These are the issues that we need to discuss in a rational and, and, and holistic way and say, what do we need to do to bring about a safer society? Very well said, Amelda Wickham. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Uh, thank you for listening and the name of the book, folks, and I would recommend it to anybody who has any interest in our criminal justice system and in society in general in terms of how we treat those who have committed crime and what 
our prison system is there for. Unheard Voices, Reflections of a Prison Chaplain by Imelda Wickham is the book. See you again soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.